Let's open in our Bibles to the book of Exodus chapter number 2. Exodus chapter number 2. I'm going to ask you to uh, save your place there. If you've got a bookmark, uh, if you want to ask to borrow $100 from your neighbor uh, for a bookmark, something like that, you can do that. And I'm going to have you mark your place there. And I'm also going to have you find the book of Acts chapter number 7. Then what I'm going to do is have you uh, put a little bookmark there and have you find one more place in the Word of God. And that's in Hebrews chapter number 11. I'll go ahead and tell you the name of the message this evening is three sides of the same coin. Now, before you get any wise ideas, I already had somebody tell me tonight, and I won't I won't say who, Brother Caleb, but uh, somebody said to me tonight, they was talking about the message this morning, you know, and we was, we was preaching on how, you know, Pilate tried to avoid making a decision about Christ, and he tried that. He tried that through a substitute, Brother Ken. He tried that through a scourging. And he tried that through a surrogate. And he tried that through a ceremony. And I had it brought to my attention tonight. Somebody, somebody, I'm not going to say who, Brother Caleb, Willette, right there, said, uh, you, you know that the word ceremony begins with a C, don't you? And I said, uh, oh yes, Brother Caleb, I do. That's one of the, uh, that, that's one of the high and holy and secret tricks of the lazy preacher. It's called phonetic alliteration. Amen. And what that means is I knew it wasn't the same letter. I just didn't care. Amen. And I sort of, I know that uh, a good portion of our church probably wouldn't notice were it not that somebody brought it up, made a big deal about it, uh, Brother Caleb. And so, uh, and let me go ahead and, and, and set your mind at ease and tell you this. I happen to know that a coin doesn't have three sides either, amen? Not unless you're counting the edge. But uh, I believe that maybe as we uh, read the text tonight, you'll get a little bit of an understanding of why we're naming the message that three sides of the same coin while we're using that this evening. We'll read in all three of these portions of the Word of God. And if you don't have any $100 bills to use as bookmarks, you can just listen carefully as we read the Word of God tonight. Exodus chapter number 2, verse number 11. Word of God says, And it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, that he went out unto his brethren, looked on their burdens, and he spied an Egyptian smiting in Hebrew, one of his brethren. And he looked this way and that way. When he saw that there was no man, he slew the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the second day, behold, two men of the Hebrews strove together. And he said to him that did the wrong, Wherefore smitest thou thy fellow? And he said, Who made thee a prince and a judge over us? Intendest thou to kill me as thou killest the Egyptian? And Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. Now when Pharaoh heard this thing, he sought to slay Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh, and dwelt in the land of Midian, and sat down by a well. Now listen to how Stephen, the first deacon of the New Testament church, or first martyr, the New Testament church, a deacon, but the first martyr of the New Testament church. Listen to how he uh, relates this same story in the life of Moses. In Acts chapter 7, verse 22, uh, the Holy Ghost through Stephen says, And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and was mighty in words and in deeds. When he was full forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. For he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them. But they understood not. 
And the next day showed himself unto them as they strove and would have set them at one again, saying, Sirs, ye are brethren, why do you wrong one to another? But he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Wilt thou kill me as thou didst the Egyptian yesterday? Then fled Moses at this saying, and was a stranger in the land of Midian, where he begat two sons. Listen to how the uh, penman of the book of Hebrews communicates these very same events. By the way, the Holy Ghost is the author of all three of these passages. But notice how differently it is communicated to us in Hebrews 11, verse 24. The Bible says, By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he had respect under the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Let's pray together tonight. Father, we love you this evening. What a privilege it is to be in your house. Thank you for the way you met with us this morning. The work that you did in hearts. Lord, may that word that was sent forth this morning not return unto your presence void. May it continue to work effectually in the lives of those that heard it. Lord, we ask You to do it again tonight. To meet with us again. We don't deserve it. But Lord, we ask for You to meet with us again. We've, we've not done anything on our part to earn it. Lord, we ask You to just sit down on this little church on Wall Ridge Road again in the hearts of each and every person and that You would work Your mind and Your work and Your will in us for Your glory. Bless the preaching tonight, we ask it. In Christ's name, Amen. As we said at the beginning of the message, when we read these three passages, we are reading basically the same series of events in the life of Moses. It details to us his coming of an age. The Bible tells us he was a 40-year-old man at this point. His decision to leave public life in Egypt to flee into exile in the land of Midian. And some of the events that sort of facilitate and prompt that change in his life. What I'm interested in tonight is how different at first glance these passages seem to be. Now let me go ahead and tell you, as was already mentioned earlier, the Holy Ghost is the author of all three of these passages. There's not a thing said in any of these three passages that is incorrect. It is all exactly what God wanted it to be. And it is all proper and it is all appropriate And I think if we look at it carefully, we'll find that though there seem to be some differences in these passages, and even as we read it, if we're not careful, I mean the unregenerate mind would even say there's some things that contradict. But when we read these passages carefully and consider what God wants us to learn through them, I think we'll find that they are not contradictory passages, Brother Charlie. They're complementary passages. And I think what they communicate to us is three different perspectives of the same story in a man's life. How many of you know you get three people in a room that witness the same thing and ask them all three to tell you what happened? They'll all three give you different stories and they may not contradict uh, and none of them may be lying, but three different perspectives can provide three different perspectives and it can communicate different things to you in different ways. And I think that's what we have here in the life of Moses. I think if we look carefully, I I could really say it in about three different ways. I think in the book of Exodus, we have an external view of these events. 
I believe that the Holy Ghost is recording for us the history of the matter and undoubtedly the human penman that he used uh, that communicated these things. We talk about how Moses pinned down the first five books of the Bible. We assume that to be true, but certainly whoever is recording this seems to be speaking of it as a stranger, unacquainted intimately with Moses. He does not communicate what Moses was thinking or what Moses was going through or what Moses was feeling. He records it as a faithful historian would. I think when we read that, we have sort of an external view of these things. I think when we read the book of Acts, chapter 7, what we have as Stephen communicates these things is maybe we could say almost an internal view. We could say that the, the, the first account in Exodus is what it would have looked like from the outside looking in at what Moses is doing. But I think the book of Acts tells us something about what it looked like from the inside looking out. I think when we read the book of Hebrews chapter 11, we have a wholly unique perspective. For we are looking at it through the eyes of God Himself. We are looking at it through the prism of faith. And so we might say this, that Exodus provides us an external view. Uh, the book of Acts provides us an internal view. But the book of Hebrews provides us a spiritual view of the events that took place. We could also say it this way. I think in the book of Exodus, we have a view from without. I think in the book of Acts, we have a view from within. And I think in the book of Hebrews, we have a view from above. And I think that all three of these reveal something about Moses' experience. Now let me say, before I mention to you a third way, we might uh, talk about this tonight, that really what we have at issue here is Moses making the choice to follow God. And I want us, as we look at this passage, have this thought in mind. You know, following God looks different from different perspectives. We have certain ideas about what it's going to look like to follow God in our life. And then there are others that as they observe us following God in our life, they'll have a different opinion, different perspective than us. And then let me say this, thank the Lord that it looks different from where God sits when we follow God. If all there was was the way it looked to the world and the way it looked to the weary pilgrim, I believe that we'd probably soon give up, but I'm glad that God gives us a little glimpse of His divine perspective on what it looks like when a child of God tries to follow God. Can I tell you something? Hey, listen, when the world looks at it, it looks silly. When the believer is living it, it feels like a struggle. But when God details it, Brother Ken, don't it sound sublime? (laughs) I mean, when you read what the book of Exodus says, it looks like Moses... I ain't got a clue what he's doing. He's making mistakes. If you read the book of Acts, it sort of confirms that he seems blindsided by these events. But boy, to read what God said about it, it just seemed like Moses knew what was going on the whole time. You know, I don't think it's that Moses knew, but I think it's that God knew. And so I think maybe when we talk about what it looks like to do the will of God, to follow the will of God, and to live for God, we could maybe say it this way. The book of Exodus provides for us the perspective of society. What does it look like to the world when a child of God follows God? I'll tell you this, the world doesn't understand when a child of God follows God. I think the book of Acts shows us the perspective of the saint as he follows God. Can I tell you something? It ain't always going to feel like roses and clouds and kittens and rainbows when you're following God. There's going to be times you feel like you're failing. There's going to be times you're going to feel like You're doing everything wrong. There's going to be times that in your decision making in life, you're going to feel like you're all thumbs and left feet. 
and that there's no way that God could ever do anything with the mess of your life that it is. But I'm thankful, hey, listen, there's also the perspective in the book of Hebrews of the sovereign God who has the ability to take the things we do for Him and to work them all together for good and to turn them to that which glorifies Him. So let's think about these perspectives tonight very quickly in the text, the Word of God. The first we find is in Exodus chapter number 2. And remember, this is the perspective of a faithful historian. It is not really impregnated with emotion and, and with, uh, you know, personal touch and, and personal empathy or anything like that. It's just the, the bare facts, the bare details of what transpired. And I think it's probably what it looks like if society was to see someone follow God. Look how it opens up. The Bible says in Exodus 2.11, it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out unto his brethren and looked on their burdens. And he spied an Egyptian smiting in Hebrew, one of his brethren. And he looked this way and that way. And when he saw that there was no man, he slew the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. You know, I don't know about you, but when I read that account of what transpired, if I didn't know anything else about the Word of God, if this was the only, if I was sitting out in the middle of a desert somewhere and never heard the name of Jesus, and someone dropped uh, Exodus chapter 2 in my lap and I was to read that, I'd probably make a, an assumption. I think this account could easily be read in this way, that Moses is slaying the Egyptian simply out of anger or vengeance. Now, we know from reading the book of Acts and the book of Hebrews, we know that there was more going on in Moses' life. But don't it just read, when you, when you just read good, it sounds like Moses, he knows he's a Hebrew, he goes to see how his brethren are doing, he sees an Egyptian beaten up on and, and smiting and assaulting and afflicting a Hebrew. And if you just read that at face value, it sounds like he just got his blood up, he just got his back up, he just got angry at seeing this injustice and killed this Egyptian. I don't know about you, but I would say this, that uh, from an outsider looking in, it looks like Moses was frivolous in his decision making. It looked as though he made this decision impulsively. It looked as though he made this decision irrationally. It looked as though he made this decision emotionally. Now, we know there's more going on, but can I just tell you this tonight, child of God, and this isn't even really where I'm, where my message is, so I'm going to try to hurry through it, but can I just say this? A lot of times to the world looking for child of God, it looks like the decisions they're making are frivolous. The world doesn't understand why it's a priority to us to be in the house of God. The world doesn't understand why it's a priority to us to live clean. The world doesn't understand. Man, we've seen this thing happen throughout these past, you know, months and this, this past year. And it's been astonishing to see politicians that are spoke, you know, we talked about them this morning, people of faith, right? People of faith that have been aborting babies by the millions and, and, and unraveling the very uh, biblical values of our society. It's been amazing to see politicians just, I mean, shocked beyond belief that anybody would think it's important to go to church. I mean, they just can't believe it. <laughs> it's astonishing to them that people would prioritize church. It's astonishing to them that people would view religious worship as a right. As a right. It's a right. It don't matter if you say it or not. It, it is. It don't matter if the government says it or not. It is. It really don't matter if the Bill of Rights said it or not. It is. All the Bill of Rights did was observe things that were easily observable already in the human experience. And, you know, it's been funny to watch the world just absolutely shocked that there would be a group of people that would be willing to risk their health and be willing to, to risk their well-being and all that to go and to meet and to worship. 
And you know, the truth is in your life and in mine, there'll be times that people look at the decisions we make in serving God and they seem frivolous. They don't understand why we're making such a big deal out of this thing of obeying God and living for God. They can't understand why we'd, why we'd forego the pay raise. They can't understand why we'd forego the promotion. They can't understand why we would forego the pleasure. They can't understand that. It just don't make sense to them. It seems irrational. You know, I think when they looked at Moses, he probably looked sort of frivolous. But then notice what it says. It goes on in verse 13. It says, And when he went out the second day, behold, two men of the Hebrews strove together. And he said to him that did the wrong, Wherefore smitest thou thy fellow? And he said, Who made thee a prince and a judge over us? Intendest thou to kill me as thou killest the Egyptian? And Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. You know, Moses truly didn't think anyone saw him kill the Egyptian. But the fact is, when you read that text, it almost sounds like it is a foregone conclusion that somebody would know about. And Moses thought nobody knew, but I'll tell you at least one person that knew, at least one person that knew was the Egyptian that he delivered from, or the, the, the Hebrew that he delivered from that Egyptian. And it appears to me, if nobody else knew, Moses thought, well, surely this fellow will not betray me. I'll get away with this. And it could be that it was the very same man now this day that is charging him. We do not know. But I would say this, that from an outsider looking in, if you were to look at that, you'd say, well, why did Moses think he was going to get away with it in the first place? You can't get away with nothing. Amen? I mean, if we, let's go ahead and just even put a biblical, a biblical tenor on this. I mean, listen, be sure your sin will find you out. I'd say this, that when you read this, if I just, I'm sitting in the middle of the desert, somebody dropped the Word of God in my lap, it was open to Exodus 2, Brother Ken, and I, and I read this, the first thing I would think is, is how silly that Moses got so angry that he killed this Egyptian just because he was mad, just because he was, his blood was in a bull. And then the second thing I'd think, Brother Ken, I, I'd think to myself, and how foolish he was to think that he could get away with it. Can I say this, that when society looks at the actions and decisions of the believer, they look foolish to them. They look foolish to them. When they see us pouring ourselves into the work of God and putting things like economic well-being and, and, and position in society and any number of other things that the world values, putting those things on the back burner and instead prioritizing our walk with God and living for Him, it doesn't make any sense to them. When they see us depriving ourselves of the pleasures of sin in order that we might please a God that they can't see, but they don't know, they look at it and they think how foolish the Christian is to live his life in bondage when he could be living it up and having fun. Now, they don't talk about the other side of that thing. They don't talk about uh, the heartache of addiction and of brokenness and of sin. Suffice it to say, there's going to be times in your life and mine when we follow God, people are going to think us foolish for doing so. Uh, listen, and I don't. we don't have a bunch of our teenagers here tonight. we got some, but let me say that the world's going to think you a fool for prioritizing God. Man, they're not going to understand why it's more important to you to, to be present in the things of God and to live for God and to, to serve God than it is to try to jockey your way to a place of, of prosperity and, and of influence in society. It's going to look foolish. Go ahead and just mark her down. From the outside looking in, the world doesn't understand and they're going to call you a fool for doing so. You know what the Bible says about the world that treats believers in that way? The Bible says in the book of Hebrews 11, of whom the world was not worthy. Can I tell you something? Listen, a world that would treat you that way is not worthy of you. You are not worthy of the God that loved you and bought you and saved you. 
but because of how much value He invested into you as an individual, that He would die for you. Can I tell you something? Anything that Jesus would die for, the world is not worthy of. Anything that costs the life of the Son of God, the world is not worthy of. You should not have any jurisdiction over what you do. On the outside looking in, I'd say that he looked frivolous and he looked foolish. But then notice what it says in verse 15. It says, now when Pharaoh heard this thing, he sought to slay Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian and he sat down by a well. Now your King James Bible says a million percent accurately that he fled from the face of Pharaoh. Later on, we're going to read in the book of Hebrews, it tells us he did not fear the king. We're going to talk about, we're going to reconcile those two ideas, but God didn't mess up when He pinned it down in the book of Exodus. Undoubtedly, Moses did feel fear in his heart. Undoubtedly, he was scared when he fled the land of Egypt. And we'll learn more about what fear is before we're done tonight. But let me say this, that when the world from the outside looking in, here's what I would think. I'm going to go back. Me and Brother Ken was doing pretty good about this, so we're going to talk about it more, Brother Ken. I would think to myself, I would think how frivolous it was that he killed that man over nothing but just he got angry. And then I would think to myself how foolish it is that he thought he'd get away with that. Of course he can't get away with that. Then I would think this, but Ken, I'd think, and then he fled the land of Egypt, fearful, fearful that he was going to lose his life. I'd say he fled, the old uh, adage might be, with his tail between his legs, running away from the problems that he had, that he was a fearful individual. Let me say, undoubtedly, there was fear in the heart of Moses. And I say this, fear fear can dwell within us without dominating us. Ain't nobody that doesn't have fear. I don't care who you are. We all have fear. And if you say, I don't, we just ain't found what you're scared of. Amen? You, you'd probably see a house cat and scream like a woman and climb up the walls of your house. I've known people that do. I, I, I'm saying we just ain't found what it is you're scared of. Everybody has fear within them. Fear can dwell within you without dominating you. But from the outside looking in, he looked fearful. In fact, we would say this, that very often the world looks at the child of God following God and thinks that everything we do is motivated out of a timidity and a fear of living life. They treat Christians as though they walk holy and walk circumspect simply because they're afraid to get out and enjoy life or they're afraid to get out and take risks or they might even sort of shroud it in sanctity and mock us by saying that we're fearful that God's going to beat us up or knock us over the head if we do something wrong. Hey, listen, anybody living life like that don't know who God is. They've not met Him. They've not felt His love. They've not tasted the good grace of God Almighty. They don't understand what it is to be a child of God. Listen, I, a long time ago, I, I'm not saying there's not a thing as a healthy reverence of God, but this thing of living in terror, that doesn't define the Christian experience as regards our relationship with God. Perfect love casts without fear. Hey, listen, I don't serve Him because I have to. I serve Him because I get to. Amen? But from the outside looking in, very often the world would say that the child of God is fearful in His decision. So I think there's sort of an external view here, but look with me in the book of Acts. And let's, let's listen to what Stephen says about this experience. This is part of a larger, longer discourse that Stephen is describing to us about God's providential workings uh, in this world and bringing about His Son to die for our sins. But in, in relating that story, he tells us a little bit about what part Moses played in. And listen to how he begins this. Look at Acts chapter 7, verse 22. Now remember, we saw an external view, but here's what I think this is. I think this is an internal view. 
I think Exodus is a view from without, but I think Acts is a view from within. I think Exodus is the perspective of society, but I think the book of Acts gives us the perspective of the saints. What did it look like to Moses when he was serving God? The Bible says in verse 22 that Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and in deeds. When he was full 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood how that God by His hand would deliver them. But they understood not. Can I tell you something? Living for God looks a lot different to the person living for God than it does to the people from the outside looking in. wonder what it felt like to be Moses. Have you ever thought about this? One of the things that God has burdened my heart with lately is understanding a right perspective on the human nature in the context of the stories of the Word of God. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, we view it, man, and these, these Bible characters, they're, they're carved out in granite. They're legends. We view them as otherworldly. We view them as somehow walking a step above where you or I could ever attain. But you know what they was? They're flesh and blood just like you and me. They had struggles. They had failures. And I know in my life, especially looking back at the good hand of my God upon me, there's times that God was working and moving in my life. But if I'm to be honest, from where I was sitting in the middle of it, it sure didn't feel like God was working and moving. And I think where Moses is sitting, when this story is told, there are three features that seem to set forth prominently in this text. And I just wonder if sometimes this is what serving God feels like. You know what the first one is? When I read this passage, I notice that from his perspective, from where Moses sat, it seemed like living for God was marked by disappointment. Moses had high hopes that his brethren would receive him gladly as their deliverer. In fact, you can almost hear it drip from the text of the Word of God when you read here that Moses, he had all this opportunity. He was trained. He was learned in all the wisdom of Egypt. And, and he was mighty in words and in deeds. And he was full 40 years old. He was, uh, uh, he was growing to an age where he would have stepped into public life. He was on the cusp, maybe possibly, of ruling in the land of Egypt. And he left all that behind because he loved his brethren and he wanted to work in their life and he wanted to deliver them. And one of the things that Stephen reveals to us is this actually was in Moses' heart the whole time. He didn't just go down there and fly off mad and kill an Egyptian. He saw the oppression and God had already put it in his heart that he was going to be the one that God was going to use. And here's what Moses did. He did something that a lot of us do. He said, God, let me help you out with that. And instead of waiting on God, he said, I know what I'll do. I'll go down and I'll, I'll prove to them my loyalty and I'll lead them in rebellion and revolution against their Egyptian masters and, and they'll follow me because here I am. I, I, I'm the perfect person. I'm mighty in words and in deeds. I'm, I'm a warrior. I, I've had military experience. I have wisdom. I know all of the, the inners and outers of, of life in Egypt, in the Egyptian court. And, 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 and I'll be the perfect person to lead them out. You know, the problem was they didn't feel like that about him. He leaves all that behind and he goes down and he kills this Egyptian. And the Bible says he fought. He thought that his brethren would understand. How does it tell us? It says, Brother Charlie, but they understood not. How frustrating that must have been. What a disappointment that must have been. Can I tell you something? Sometimes, 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 child of God, living for God looks like your highest hopes and your greatest dreams 
falling short. Did to Moses. By the way, Moses had the direction right, he just didn't have the directions right. You hear me? He had the direction right. He he had the right injunction, he just didn't have the right instructions. (laughs) He had the right direction, he just didn't have the right directions. He saw what God wanted him to accomplish, but he didn't understand how God was going to accomplish it. So here's what he did. He put the dream before the devotion. He put the dream before the devotion. He deified the dream instead of just committing himself to do the will and the work and the mind of God. And all that brought was disappointment to him. You know why? Because when God didn't do what he wanted in the way he wanted, it crushed him. Very often as you live for God, you're going to be met with disappointment. In fact, I'd say this. If I read my Bible right, it seems like there's more disappointment than there is triumph sometimes. It looks like there's more setbacks than step forward sometimes. It feels as though disappointment dwells as as an ever-present part of the experience of living for God. It looks all glorious from the outside. But for the person living it, very often it is met with doubts and anxieties and disappointments. I remember hearing a a preacher preach a message years ago, a man named R.B. Lepp, preacher up in Michigan. He was telling the story. He was preaching on the different voices in the book of Nehemiah. And he, he was preaching about... Uh, that there was a time in his ministry that God was working, God was moving. They, they had decided they was going to build a Christian school and, and they had stepped out on faith and they had went and bought property and, 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 and built facilities. They would hired a dozen teachers. I mean, I ain't talking about no homeschool thing. I mean, classical education. I'm talking about millions of dollars in payroll. And he talked about how as soon as he made that decision and they were awaiting opening of enrollment, for their Christian school, it was over the summer that he'd lay in bed and he'd hear the voices of doubt and insecurity speak to him every night. He said that he would think to himself, he'd, he'd roll over on, on, on one side and, and he'd hear a voice whisper in his ear, ain't nobody going to register in that Christian school. You're a fool for thinking people are going to spend all that money to register in that Christian school. And then he'd roll over to the other side and another voice would say, it don't matter anyway because you ain't never going to get it open in the first place. Then he'd roll back on the other side and say, you can't get it open anyway because you're going to fall into the debt that you have and it's going to overwhelm you and overtake you. And He'd roll over to the other side and another voice would whisper to him and say, none of that even matters because that church is going to throw you out for doing something as foolish as this. And after night, after night, after night, the voices would just assault him until he learned to push all those things out and just listen to that still, small voice. I'm saying from the people on the outside looking at what Dr. Roulette would do, was doing, he looked like a lion of faith. He looked like somebody that was a bulwark of living for God. But to him it was all fear, it was all doubt, it was all anxiety. And you know what? God still did work through all that. Saying we got an outside perspective where we see the child of God living for God. We think, oh, how glorious that must be. What we don't see is how laborious it really is. It takes more. So I, I see it was marked by disappointment. Then notice what it says. It goes on a little further. And it says in verse number 26, The next day he showed himself unto them as they strove and would have set them at one again, saying, Sirs, ye are brethren. Why do ye wrong one to another? But he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? (coughs) Wilt thou kill me as thou didst the Egyptian yesterday? Now, again, if I if I just basic basic thought logic problems, it seems to me like if Moses looks around and he doesn't see anyone that has witnessed the slaying of this Egyptian, it must be the only person that could have told was the man that he delivered from the Egyptian. 
And probably Moses thought to himself, though they would not follow him, surely they would not betray him. They may not follow him in a glorious revolution, but surely this fellow at least is going to keep his secret and not put his life at risk. I mean, after all, he slew the Egyptian for him. Yet his brethren betrayed him to the very tyrants that Moses sought to deliver them from. You know what? That must have stung deeply. That must have been one of the hardest parts of the ordeal that Moses went through was the deep betrayal he felt by those that he was merely trying to help. Can I say this? Sometimes from where the child of God sits, living for God is marked by disappointment. Sometimes it's marked by desertion. I'll tell you what sometimes it feels like. Sometimes it feels like somebody putting a knife in your back. Sometimes it feels like the very folks you're trying to help are the very ones that turn upon you. I understand I got no violins to play tonight. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not whining or complaining. The Lord's been too good to me. But I'm just telling you tonight as you live for God, you think everybody's going to clap for you living for God. You think everybody's going to help you live for God. You think everybody's just going to do everything they can to support you as you live for God. But the sad truth is sometimes the very people that next to the Lord you're doing it for are the very ones that misunderstand and can hurt you. I wish I could tell you everybody's going to be thrilled as you make the decision to serve God. But I'd have to lie to you to tell you that. Very often people, sometimes wittingly, sometimes unwittingly, but the people you love most can be the ones that hurt you deepest. Hey, it wasn't the Egyptians that betrayed Moses. It was his brethren. It wasn't those that he hated, but it was his own familiar friend that lifted up his heel against him. Sometimes as you live for God, I wish I could tell you everybody's just going to clap for you and love you and brag on you and be for you, but that's not the truth. Sometimes, sometimes serving God is marked by desertion. Then look what it says in verse 29. This is an interesting way for this story to end in the book of Acts. All it says is, Then fled Moses at this saying. I would say this, that from where Moses is sitting, what does serving God look like to him? Now, we, we sit here and we see, we see Charlton Heston with the tablets, right? We see him gloriously victorious. We see him 40 years later leading the people of God out of Egypt under the high hand of, of the Holy God. And we see the, we see Egypt rocking and reeling and raging and convulsing under the, the plagues and under the, the, the death angel. What it looked like to Moses on this day, I'd say this, it looked like disappointment. He thought it was going to work out a certain way and it didn't. It looked like desertion. He thought these people would love him, that they'd appreciate and understand what he's doing for them. They didn't, they turned their backs on him. Number three, you know what it looked like? It looked like defeat. Moses knew one thing above all. One thing above all. He knew that God was going to use him to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. But you know, the Bible don't say there that they fled. The Bible says he fled. It doesn't say him and most of the Hebrews fled. It doesn't even say him and some of the Hebrews fled. In fact, it goes out of its way to tell us that Moses left Egypt alone. Maybe he could have rationalized something about having won a victory and done the will of God if two or three had come out with him or, or maybe a family had come out. But no, just Moses. And there's no way to cut it but to say that Moses left Egypt a failure. Can I tell you that very, very often as you live for God, you know what you're going to feel? 
you're going to feel failure. You're going to feel as though you're not getting it done. You're, you're going to feel like every time you take a step, it's a misstep. You're going to feel like every time you make a decision, it's the wrong decision. And you're going to feel like every time you make a commitment to live for God and to, to serve God, that you find yourself falling flat on your face in disappointment and defeat. Have I got you excited yet? You're ramped up, you ready to charge out there? No, listen, I'm just telling you the truth. That's how it feels a lot of times. Go ahead and try to live for God. You'll know what I'm talking about. Go ahead, come down to this altar. Give some over to the Lord. Make your commitment to God. You'll find the devil meeting you, sitting you back in your pew. And I ain't talking about your spouse. Somebody say amen to that. Waiting to climb right on your back and beat you half to death. I'm just telling you what it really feels like from where you sit. But can I give you some good news? It ain't all about what it looks like to you. It ain't all about what it looks like to me. <laughs> what an amazing thing. I mean, you'd think in this self-centered world we live in, Brother Ken, it's all just about how we feel about things, but not in God's economy, because God don't leave it there. God takes us over to the book of Hebrews 11. And can I say this, that the way that other people see things may not be the truth of it. The way that you see things may not be the truth of it. But the way that God sees things is the absolute, pure, unadulterated truth of it. Can I give you a little illustration and then we'll preach the last few thoughts? You remember at the lowest point of John the Baptist's life, he is in jail awaiting his execution. He sends disciples to Jesus with this simple question, Art thou he that should come, or should we look for another? I'd say that's a man struggling, wouldn't you? He's getting ready to be executed. He's having doubts. He's having fears. and He's having second thoughts. He's to a place now. He ain't even sure if this... G- I mean, he's the one that said, Behold the Lamb of God. And now he's saying, Is he really the Lamb of God? This is the one that said that I'm not, a, I'm not worthy to loose his shoe latchet. Now he's saying, Are you sure you're the Messiah? I'd say this is a man in crisis. Jesus looks at the disciples and He says, here's what you go and tell John. Go and tell John that the blind have their eyes open, the lame are being made to walk, the dead are being raised to life, the poor are having the gospel preached to Him. You go and tell John that I'm doing these works and even greater works than these am I going to do. In other words, He tells us, go tell John everything's alright. And then He says this, go tell him this, Blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. Vance Habner used to say that's the beatitude of not getting mad at God for handling his own business. Blessed is he whosoever uh, trusts God to handle things in his way. And that certainly was what John had to learn to do. But you know what I find fascinating? Now I know what it would have been like in the average Baptist church. So I know what happened that day. After the disciples left, everybody's sitting around. They heard what had happened. They started whispering. That about John. Can you imagine? I mean, this is John the Baptist. Boy, he must really change. Boy, he must really be struggling. I guess old John ain't what we thought he was, is he? Jesus turned around and he looked at him and he said this. When you went out into the wilderness to hear that wild man preach, what did you go out for? Did you go out so that you could see people arrayed in fine linen and arrayed in purple? No, that ain't where people are that are arrayed that way. Did you go out so that you could hear a prophet? Yeah, that's why you went out. 
and you heard more than a prophet. He said, in fact, there's never been a man born of woman greater than that John that's sitting in prison right now. You know, to John, he thought he was a failure. To John, he thought, boy, I'm at the lowest point of my life. From where John sat in the inside of that jail cell, he felt like a complete failure. But Jesus says that man sitting down in the jail is the greatest man born of woman to walk this earth. I'm just saying this, sometimes how it looked to you isn't the truth of things. You have to grant that sometimes there's more going on than even what you can see. What about what God saw? Well, I noticed three things, and I'll mention them to be done tonight. Over in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, I see three things that God saw. Three things that God paid attention to. It's interesting because when you read this passage, you know what God don't mention? He don't mention Him killing the Egyptian. He don't say anything about it. You say, why is that, preacher? Well, put simply because it was a mistake. It was a bad decision. You know what God's done done with our sins? You know. You preach it. Their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Funny thing, when God told the story, people would say, but God, what about him killing that Egyptian? God said, what Egyptian? What about him messing up and, and committing that murder? God said, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't see any of that when I remember that story. What did God remember? Well, let me say this. Number one, you know what God saw? God saw his commitment. Listen now, it's told in Hebrews 11:24 by faith, Moses, when he was come to years, here's what he did. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. From the outside looking in, it, it looked like he just loved the Hebrews and wanted to go help them. From the inside looking out, it, it just looked like he uh, wanted to be a great leader and to, to be a great deliverer to Egypt or to, to, to the children of Israel. But God said, I know what you did. You made the decision to walk away from a life of prosperity and power and prestige so that you could serve me. He refused some things. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And here's what he did. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. The world thought that uh, Moses, uh, the world no doubt was confused by Moses' decision to renounce his status as a prince. The Hebrews were probably skeptical of Moses, no doubt wondering if he was a spy. God, however, saw Moses' heart. God saw it better than even Moses did. And God appreciated fully the decision that Moses made in choosing his God and his people over prestige, power, and prosperity. You know what I like? Hey, listen, you know, the Bible talks about how we give to the Lord. And the Bible says it's reckoned according to what a man hath, not, not what he hath not. And that if a man gives in his heart first, that God reckons and accounts that giving in the heart before the giving physically has ever took place. I'm not saying our actions don't matter. I'm saying this. God looks beyond our actions and looks to our motives as well. And I say that to the world from the outside looking in, what Moses was doing didn't make sense. From where Moses sat, he may have even questioned in himself why he was doing what he was doing. But God steps back, looks at it and says, Moses, I know where your heart was in that decision that you made. I know what it cost you to do what you did. Can I say I'm glad that God keeps a record even when we're not fully sure about what's going on in our heart and life, God looks at what we do and reckons according to what we do. I'm glad. Hey, listen, it's I see that he saw his commitment. Can I say 
very often nobody else will see your commitment. You live for God and you do it the right way. The majority of the things you do for Him ain't nobody going to know about. You listen? You live for God and you do it the right way. The majority of the things you do for Him, nobody's going to know about. They're not going to talk about it. They're not going to pat you in the back, on the back over it. They're not going to appreciate it. And by the way, even those that know about it will probably not understand the difficulty of what you did. But the God of heaven knows and sees everything that we do. God saw His commitment. I would say number two, look what it says in verse number 26. The Bible says He was esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasure in Egypt. For he had respect under the recompense of the reward. God saw his commitment. Number two, God saw his consecration. God saw what Moses truly loved. Moses, in making this decision, I don't think Moses knew exactly who Jesus Christ was, but I do think he understood that a Messiah was coming. In fact, it was Moses himself that God later, under inspiration of the Holy Ghost, prompted to pin down this statement that a prophet will be raised up like unto me. And that was a prophecy about Jesus Christ. And I don't think that Moses understood everything about it, but I do think he understood this, that God was going to raise up a deliverer, not just in his day, but in a future day. Not just to put him in the land, but to put him in the will of the Lord and to bring about all the promises God had made to Abraham. And I think what he was saying in the decision that he made to leave Egypt is I'm siding with God on this. I'm I'm betting on God that God's going to keep His promise. And I value the plan of God above all that Egypt can give to me. The world thought Moses foolish for slaying the Egyptian. I mean, why would he throw it all away only to get caught? But God saw that what Moses truly valued above all uh, was the riches of Christ. He esteemed them greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. God took note of the fact that Moses abandoned the safety of life in Egypt's palace in exchange for God's will and God's word. God knows what you truly love. God knows where your heart really is. The world don't know. Other Christians don't know. And can I be honest with you? There'll be times you won't know. Because the heart's desperately wicked. It's deceitful above all things. Who can know it? You know, we never quote the next verse where the Lord says, I, the Lord, fry the reins. He says, I know the heart. <laughs> God says, you don't know your heart, but I know your heart. We're all in a bad habit of saying, if I know my own heart, when the truth is, we don't know our own heart. You know, even when you can't unravel where your heart is at with things, you'll just to the best of your ability love God and serve God and put God first. God will look at that thing and and He'll... It's almost like our prayers. When we pray, we don't know what to pray and the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings and utterings which cannot be discerned. We pray and we don't know how to pray. God says, I can see you are trying to pray and I know what your heart is, so I'm going to take that jumbled mess that you just gave to me and I'm going to straighten it out. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to to copy edit it. I'm going to make it everything that it ought to be. You know, God does that even with our actions and choices. If we'll love God and put God first, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to do things wrong, but listen, if we'll get the main thing, the main thing, and love Him with all of our heart, God has a wonderful, sublime, blissful way of coming along and working out all of the little missteps that we've made. You know, God turned this thing for good in the life of Moses. God was going to spend 40 years teaching Moses how to lead people by having him lead flocks. God prepared Moses for a life of leadership through a, a life of obscurity. God turned it all for good. You know why? Because that's what God does. Hey, listen, I, you know, we'll say sometimes that, you know, well, things work out. No, things don't work out. God works things out. 
They, it doesn't say all things work out for good. It says all things work together for good. It's one thing for things to just kind of work out, right? Uh, there, there's been times that something just up, up to happenstance or, 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 or sheer statistic, it just something just kind of worked out. But for something to work together, somebody has to be working things together, right? I mean, a puzzle don't just fall together on its own. If it gets put together, somebody put it together. Things don't just work out, they work together. And you know what? God has the ability. We do our best. We, we keep our heart pure before Him. He can take that mess of a life that we've got, all the missteps, all the mistakes that we make, and He can make it what it needs to be. God saw His consecration. Then I see this, verse 27. It's really, really interesting. It says, By faith He forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for He endured as seeing Him who is invisible. You know, the world assumed that Moses fled Egypt in fear. I can see why they would think that. No doubt Moses was fearful when he fled. In fact, the Bible tells us that he fled at that saying, that he feared Pharaoh. No doubt he was fearful. But why does the Holy Ghost here say that he, he fled not fearing the king? I'll tell you why. Because in God's economy, fear is not merely an emotion. Fear is a decision. We all are fearful of things. But when Moses fled, can I, can I just, let me just give you a scenario. If I was Moses and I wanted things to work out, you know what I'd probably do? I probably wouldn't run. Only guilty people run. I probably wouldn't run. You know what I would have done, Charlie? I would have went into daddy's throne room and I would have said, you wouldn't believe the lies that these Hebrews are telling on me. They say that I killed an Egyptian. I didn't kill no Egyptian. Why would I? The prince of Egypt risk everything to kill some Egyptian. Why would I do such a thing? I'm betting the Pharaoh would have probably said, you know, son, you're right. These are just worthless slaves in the first place. I mean, why would we believe them? They have no standing in our society. Moses could have easily done that. You know the problem? To do that, he would have had to lie. To do that, he would have had to have disobeyed the Lord. You see, what we fear and the decisions we make in my life, in our life, they're not unilateral. He could have lied and tried to get out of trouble. Did he fear Pharaoh? Sure, he feared Pharaoh. But his fear of Pharaoh was not why he fled Egypt. He could have stayed in Egypt even having been afraid of Pharaoh. It was his fear of God that made him flee Egypt because his fear of God forced him, compelled him to have to be truthful about what he had done. And when he fled, it wasn't because he was afraid of Pharaoh. He fled because he feared God, reverenced God, and wanted God to be pleased with his life. You know, when we read that, we, we see him as a coward. But you know what God saw? God saw his courage. God saw that Moses made the hard decision. When he could have chosen to lie in order to maintain his station, instead he fled, trusting that God would preserve and protect him in exile. He may have been fearful of Pharaoh, listen, but he chose to fear God. It helped us to recognize that fear is not just an emotion. You know that by and large we can't control our emotions? We can master them, but we cannot dictate how they exist. If you don't believe that, who was it? Miss Ina was saying the other day, talking about she's giving testimony in Senior Saints, saying that she's talking to somebody and, and she's upset and, and this person looked at her and said, just calm down. And she said, he ought to know better than tell a woman to calm down. This is, this is Anna. This is not me. I wouldn't say something like this. This is Miss Anna that said this. 
You want to know whether emotions are real? Next time you and your wife's having a fight, you just look at her and say, quit being hysterical. See how she responds to that. I'm saying, I'm saying fear. Emotions are more than just what we feel. The emotions are what we feel, but it's the decisions that God judges and reckons. We spend so much time focused on what our emotions say. We ought to be more concerned with what our actions say. God looked at Moses and He didn't say, did Moses have fear in his heart of Pharaoh or didn't He? Of course He did. But it was not the fear that motivated and mandated Moses' decisions. It was his fear of the Lord. I'm glad even when we can't unriddle what we're feeling and going through, that God looks at the decisions we make and putting Him first. And that's what He judges us according to. Now somebody here is going to say, well, that's good preacher and everything, but how's that help me? You might be in a place right now where you're struggling. You're not the first person. You're not the last person if the Lord carries His coming. We all struggle as we try to live for God. You might feel like a failure tonight, but can I tell you something? Good news, child of God. I think if we looked at it the way that God looked at it, we might be a little easier on ourselves in as much as we're trying to serve God. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to be committed and honest. That's all God needs. God, there's only one time God demanded perfection and He got it from His Son. Since then, it ain't perfection He's looking for. He's looking for sincerity, honesty, commitment. He's just looking for you to give your whole heart, your whole broken self to Him, just as it is. He'll make it what it needs to be. There may be some here that's struggling because they can't unriddle and unravel the things that they're feeling, the things that they're going through. Can I say this? It'd do us good sometimes to get out of our own head, set those things to the side and just say, Lord, here I am. I don't understand everything about what I'm feeling. I don't understand everything about what I'm going through. I don't understand everything about the choices I'm making. But God, here I am. Best as I know how, I belong to You. Lord, lead me and guide me. And I'll make myself available to You. You know, you'd be amazed what God could do if you'll do that. There may be some here abused and, and, and misunderstood by the world. That ain't no surprise. You try to live for God and serve God. The world ain't going to understand. Can I tell you something? The world isn't to be all into all of it. Ignore what the world's saying about you. They're not the ones that you owe your life to in the first place. Focus on what God is saying about you. And let's make our life count for Him. Living for God don't always look as rosy as we think it does. But I think one of these days, one of these days we're going to know even as also we're known. One of these days we're not going to be looking through a glass darkly. We're going to know even as also we are known. One of these days it's all going to make sense. Take courage, child of God. Keep living for Him. Keep serving Him. And you'll be amazed what God can do. Let's bow together as a musician comes to play. The altar is open and you don't have to wait for the first note to be played. If God has touched your heart, then you ought to go ahead and respond in obedience unto Him. Whatever He spoke your heart about, won't you find a place down here and deal with Him? Father, bless this invitation. May it glorify Your Son. Lord, we love You. We ask it in Jesus' name.